Welcome to the Meeple Syrup Show, where designers discuss design. We're on episode 59. Are we on 59? Wow. Um, and our title is, Is Good Good Enough? That's right. We're going to be talking about games and game design. But the real question is, what makes a good game and is good enough in our market full, saturated with so many games? So... Uh, I'm excited to uh, be back home, um, able to uh, have a little energy for this episode, and it's just Sen and I, nice classic episode. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunate, really fortunately, our uh, our main man Tyler, uh, or many know the Bearded Meeple, is out celebrating his birthday. So if uh, you're on Twitter or something like that, um, wish him a happy birthday, um, because uh, he's having a good one. And we said, you know, have fun, and we'll miss you, and we'll see you in a future week. And uh, we do have two fantastic guests coming up. Why don't, Sen, why don't you tell our viewers who we have? We, we'll chat a little bit about games for us, and then we'll go back to them. But who who do our viewers have to look forward to? Oh, well, tonight you have uh, a couple people to look forward to. One is Eduardo Baraf, who is a, you know, started off in video game design, came into board game designs, made quite a little splash for himself, and so... We're going to talk with Eduardo, and we're also going to talk with our good friend Jim Pinto, who Daryl just spent a little bit of time playing games without West in Seattle. Uh, Jim uh, has deemed us worthy of his presence again, and we'll come and chat on the topic of is good good enough. Uh, so on that note, what have you been playing lately, Daryl, that you found was good? Yeah, well, I mean, we're going to get into it, I'm sure, uh, more discussion. I mean, one that we'll have to talk about is Jim's uh, new game, 100 AD. Um, I got to play that. I actually, I got to play it kind of like one and a half, not even a half, but I got to learn kind of the game and play around just to get familiar with it. And then I played a full out game of it. Um, fantastic game. It's heavy. It's chewy. Mike, um, you know, a game that I really enjoy. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that later in the show. But uh, a couple more that I really enjoyed. I got to play a lot of Essen releases at Sasquatch. Right. Um, so a few that jumped to mind that I got to play um, are things like... Um, oh, man, I need a picture because there's just so many. Um, well, I got to, I got to play uh, a, a prototype, actually, of Seth Jaffe's, uh, which was... Uh, uh, the Odysseus, Odysseus, Odysseus. Odysseus. Yeah, it's the story of kind of the fates of that journey mm-hmm. um, and influencing the journey. That was really fantastic. I also got to play another prototype called Soul um, from a newer designer, Ryan. I'm drawing a blank on his last name. I'll look that up. Um, but published stuff that I got to play. The one that that really stood out to me. I don't know the designer's name. Super elegant. You got to look this up. Is Joraku? J O R A Q A K U. J J O R A K U. A K U Joraku. Yeah, it was. Oh, there it so, is on Board Game Geek. It was so elegant. It's. Uh, oh, this one. Okay, I know. I, I know. Think it's I know Taiwanese, or I, or maybe it's somehow connected to the TBD crew. But this game is a. Tell me if this is not my kind of game. Trick taking area control. Oh, that's that's totally your type of game. Oh, it was so beautiful. So yeah. that was an ex- example to me of a really good game 
that was really satisfying. And I think those are key words that we're going to be talking about: is good and satisfying. Good and satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> how, how about you? What? what, well, what I'm just going to show the cover of Jiraku first, just so that uh, people can see it. This is the game here. Um, oh, yeah. It so was, it was made from. Uh, it was by, delicious. Made in Taiwan, I believe. So. Yeah. Really, um, really good game. Excellent. So what? Uh, I, you know, oddly enough. I've played a ton of games over the last couple of days, uh, well, weekend, specifically because it was Jeff Con 3. So um, Tyler and I were at our friend's kind of invite-only guest. You know, it's it's at his church. It's a very small little g- gathering of maybe 20 of us at a time. Oh, I was sad I wasn't there. Yeah, and it was fun. So I got to play a ton of games that I just haven't got a time to play again. I, I played most of them at least once, some of them never, uh, but got to finally play the Graiha, um, yeah. which I enjoyed. It's it's a little point salady for me, mm. but I like the way they use the cards in multiple oh, ways. Oh, yeah, the multiple Speaking use of, of the cards. cards. in mu- multiple mm-hmm. ways. This, today, uh, Scott and Ellie and I played uh, Matainai, mm-hmm. the game that you slaughtered me at that one day. Yeah. In the last turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, then we also played... <laughs> excuse me. Um, got to play Evan's game, um, Dark Moon, which is uh, awesome nice. because I've been looking so forward to playing that game. I like BSG, but it's way too long yep. um, for what it does, and so this is a great answer to that, and he used dice really well to do it. Um, played it with six, didn't take much time at all, and had that same feeling. It actually had even more epic feeling to it in a way with the dice rolling because um, there were times when we couldn't, we couldn't survive unless we rolled off really well, and we managed to do that with one person or two people in, and that was really, really fun. Um, Elysium, played that for the second time. Enjoyed that. Really liked the way that the decisions sort of look huge at the beginning, but by the end of your turn, you're like, oh, well, I just play this, then nobody else can take that. And that was really, really uh, fun for me. Not so much for some of the other people I played with because I I destroyed them, but that's okay. Yeah, Um, I can see you being good at that game. And then we we played a lot of other games, which is good. Um, Just games that I haven't had a lot of time to get to the table. So Mm -hmm. I did enjoy that. Sometimes going to a convention that all you do is play games instead of selling or instead of pitching or instead of prototypes. Uh, it was nice just to see, you know, what people have been talking about in game land that is, you know, actually published. And it, it's it's good to play those games, especially for today's topic, which is, you know, when is good good enough? Um, so I don't know if you want to start the topic right away or if you want to talk a little bit more about some other stuff. Well, I just, um, I'm going to list, I, I finally looked, found it. I got my game log. Oh, okay, good. Of, of, of Sasquatch. So I'm just going to shoot through the names of the other stuff that I played. So I played um, Hathaboo. Again, I'm sorry. To, um, it's a Spielworks. Um, H-A-I-T-H-A-B-U. H-A-I? Uh, H-A-I-T-H-A-B-U. Okay. Um, Treasure Hunters, Cornwall, Adventureland, Moonga Invaders, Karuba, Shakespeare... Gold West, Codenames, Galaris, Grand Austria Hotel, Trayvon, Revolta, Cinema Frontier, Nippon, or Nippon, yeah. uh, Potion Explosion, Craft Wagon, Above and Below, Russian Railroads, German Railroads, Looney Quest, Doctor Eureka, and those are just the ones I remember to write down. <laughs> and which ones did you really quite like? Uh, so I really loved German Railroads. 
super yummy, multiple directions to victory. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Nippon, wow. Really nice. Really, like, you think it's complex, you get into it, and it's actually pretty elegant. Um, Grand Austria Hotel, the worst game for downtime I've experienced in a long time. Like, we're talking the worst, but I think might become my favorite two-player game. Oh, interesting, because with more, it's... I played with four, and I was just like, I'm really into this game, but no thank you. But I would play that game in a heartbeat as a two. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Gold West, super elegant. Cool. Uh, Karuba and Adventureland, nice addition to to Haba. Great, Great idea there. Totally opposite side of the spectrum, Moonga Invaders. Featuring art from friend of our show, Tim Huskin, um, was super fun. Totally like kind of Euro meets uh, Maritrash. Um, yeah, so I mean, those would be the highlights. Neat. So oh, this is Wagon. that Hydabo really like game that you're talking about. What's that? This is that game you're talking about, Hydabo? Oh, yeah, not good. It was not good? No. You did not enjoy it? I really wanted to. Spielworks usually is is safe to go with, but... I know. Sorry, sorry to Scott. I'm going too fast with names of games. You'll just have to. You'll just have to watch this later. Yeah. All right. So why don't we uh, bring in our guests? Yes. Joe, if you want to do the intro, I'll click on the buttons here. Yeah, absolutely. So we got Jim Pinto coming to us, Post World Games uh, designer of a variety of things. Actually, pretty much the joke is he's probably the least known uh, game designer you should know. Um, because he's done everything, and, and yet nobody knows him. Yeah, and from the games to RPGs. And the people that do know him think he's a jerk. So well, it, that too, right? It's a, win, it's a win-win scenario for Jim. And then, uh, and then we got our Eduardo, or Ed, uh, coming on as well, who, um, as I already mentioned, was in the video game scene and has recently taken, taken the, the board game scene on fire the last few years, uh, a few very successful Kickstarters. I, I see your games everywhere, actually. The last couple of Gen Cons, I feel like I feel like Ed is maybe the Flash because he's everywhere. He's working the scene, and everyone everyone seems all over the place. He's he's all over the place. So I can't believe, actually, it's been this long since we've been able to have um, Ed on the show. There's a couple people that we should have on the show. There's, that we a, there's a lot of people that I can't yes. believe we haven't had on the show yet. But oh. I'm, I'm thankful we finally got Ed on the show and we have Jim back. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Which is good. Oh, before we start, can I, I just need to plug one thing. Please. We don't normally do this, but this is for a really good cause. Um, because I, I used to work oh, at the Canadian yes. National Institute for the Blind. Love this. Love and this. this is a very cool thing. Jim, you might think this is neat, too. Yeah. Uh, so 64-ounce games... Um, is going to be doing a Kickstarter for Braille Dice uh, in the polyhedra form, which is just really neat to know that uh, people who want to tell stories, play role-playing games, or play any game that needs dice can now you know, use Braille to figure out what their dice says, which and is I, pretty cool. I think I overheard the story that this, this is a little bit of the, the origins of 64-ounce games. Is what? Was that they, tried, they were trying to find different ways to make games accessible. Yeah, I think that's really what they, they want to do, and the so, Braille thing is... is it's bigger. a really beautiful thing there yeah. that uh, they're doing, and, uh, you know, please support them. And uh, they're not a sponsor of ours. They haven't paid us. We just love what they're doing. We also have sponsors, and we encourage you to check them out because we love what they're doing too. So um, during our intro or on our website, please check them out. 
give or him you can just love. watch what shirt or hat Daryl is wearing. Yeah. He's a pilgrim. He's <laughs> a lot of love right there. Yeah. All right, so let's get started. Um, we have a lot of questions out there in internet land, uh, but Daryl, if you want to start with the questions, I'm going to scroll. Sure. I'm going to jump one of the online ones Randy actually has for Ed. Um, what tips and strategies for balancing game design, game publishing, a full-time job, and a family? Oh, man. Like, we're, talk we're talking about making games here. How do you balance it all? Um, no, it's a great question. Um, I, I think for one part, to the, to the extent possible, just being organized. <laughs> like, sort of knowing all the things you need to get done, and I have a... Um, uh, just a piece of paper. Like I have an old-fashioned task list that's pencil and paper, and I just like everything I need to do by project, including like with with my household as a project, like family as a project, and like work and just everything I need to do. And I mean, there's lots of suggestions and advice, but for me, just understanding what's on the list and being able to prioritize it and being able to let things slide, I think, is the other big part. Like saying, I don't have to get this done today. I can get that done by Thursday, or I can get that done next week, and letting it be okay that things move out over time so that you can prioritize is probably the most impactful thing I could say. Yeah, and I think Suzanne is saying also that, Ed, you have an awesome partner. So um, I think, you know, having a supportive family, a supportive partner is one of the ways that, you know, people like yourself and myself who have full-time jobs, family, et cetera, et cetera, can do this at a, at a meaningful rate oh, for, of input, for right? sure. I, and, and my wife, Emily, um, we met in QA, so there's a appreciation for gaming and gaming culture mm -hmm. there, so that helps a lot too. Excellent, excellent. Um, so Jim, let's talk about the topic of today. Uh, Sir Bob Games uh, is asking, what are things to look out to identify not good enough designs? When you're looking at your own personal games, how do you critique them? Um, whenever I give a lecture on game design, the, I always tell people this, that I have my own criterion and list of three things that must go into something for it to be considered a game rather than a puzzle or rather than a solitaire project or a toy. I mean, there's a lot of things that companies put out that are toys that they call games. Mm -hmm. um, and because the umbrella of game is so wide, it, it doesn't mean anything by that definition. So I have to have my own personal definition. And so those three criteria are that there have to be choices, and those choices have to be meaningful, um, that your reward system is going to dictate uh, how people play your game, mm -hmm. and finally, that you must adhere to the hierarchy of all laws of design, um, which pretty much graphic design has rules, uh, interior design has rules, clothing design has rules, and all those rules show share sort of a, a harmony with, if you will, that there's a hierarchy of information about how things are presented. So if your game, and I'll use 4th edition D&D as an example, if your game has such a multitude of information in it, that you can't parse what you're receiving, then that's not really a design. That's just throwing as much stuff at the wall as you can until something sticks, and then people choose the the, the feats or the, the combination of powers that are optimal. Somebody else is doing the work of designing your game for you, and they're finding that optimality. And so I wouldn't call 4th Edition D&D, for instance, a game in, in under my criterion because there's so much stuff in there. It's more of an exercise. 
and sometimes right. in futility, fourth edition. Yeah, sure. exactly. So if I were to then say, is it a good game? I would say, well, does it does it meet the criterion that I've just established for what a game is? And if so, then I can quantifiably say and qualifiably say that it is good. Whether or not it's going to be satisfying or it's going to be something people want to play, that's that's another thing altogether. But at the very least, I've met my criterion, and chances are I'm going to at least enjoy playing it. Okay, that, that's an interesting point, because uh, Daryl and I are part of a, a group called the Game Artisans of Canada, and we have some... We have, we have a debate, an ongoing debate. It's a long, ongoing debate, and Christopher, who's on the fetal, will know about this, that... Um, is a game? Does a game have to be fun to be a game? And that no. Kind of thing? no, 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 right? no. Yeah. And so, Eduardo, from define your perspective, fun. sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, define fun, though. Like. Yeah, you gotta. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like a, it's a, that's like a, a game needs to be successful to be a game, right? Like, yeah, in my opinion. Right. So, Eduardo, again, from your perspective, then, what are you ticking off? What boxes do you check off when you say this game is? good enough to go to press. And for both you and Jim, you're doing a lot of self-publishing, so it's not just, you know, like Daryl and myself who don't self-publish, we just get people to sign our games. You're doing a lot of work. You have to believe in your product. Oh, for how, sure. How do, you, how do you get that strength of belief? Well, I, I think there's sort of two questions there. One, again, having, you know, made my own products, but, you know, for for 15 years made products for a variety of companies um, under a variety of, of requirements. Sometimes, you know, the game being good enough and the game needing to be done, you know, if I make, when I was working at Disney, if, we're, if we have to hit a launch with a movie and the, and the movie's coming out, <laughs> there's a date when it's done, whether or not it's mm -hmm. done, right? And, and I think that, um, you know, you sort of get a, especially, and, and I think it, even though uh, in one case you're working for another company, in one case you're working for yourself, um, on your own side you have to, you have to sort of appreciate that, you know, you could work on your design forever, you could refine something forever, but at some point you have to um, either say it's good enough or that you're comfortable or that you're willing to take a risk. I mean, because, I mean, I, I feel for, not everything, but for most design, most products, you can always continue to refine and play test again and play test again and play test again. So, you know, I don't, I, I think it is rare, not impossible, I, I know a couple cases even myself, but it is rare that you can sort of come to a product and be like, this thing is done, it's perfect, I wouldn't move a pixel, I wouldn't change a word, and, you know, and, and, and so it's done. I think you have to sort of gauge and, and, and manage against the situation. And so to answer the question, for me, it really depends on the game. It depends on what I'm trying to do. It depends on if I'm running out of money and I got, you know, I mean, like, it's all sorts of things. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to follow that up, actually. And, uh, uh, Su Suzanne is uh, watching, and she has a question kind of building off of that self-publishing um, and kind of knowing, you know, how do you ensure enough constructive and truly critical feedback loops are being, you know, thrown at you, especially if you're throughout the whole process. And one of the benefits that Sen and I find is, you know, the gatekeeper of a publisher becomes, you know, one of those things that we need to go through. But if you're doing the whole thing, how do you ensure that you have that constructive and critical feedback? Um, uh, for one, you need to um, be willing to accept it, right? Like, you need to be willing to say that 
you, you shouldn't be the only person playing your game. You shouldn't only be playing the game with your, your brother, right? Like, you need to be willing to do print-and-plays or prototypes or get out and go to conventions or friend groups or, you know, what, what, whatever have you. You need to play it. You need to watch people playing it. They need to play it with you. They need to play it without you. Um, you need to talk to peers. I mean, I think, again, this is in that category where, you know, if you just want to make a game for yourself that is your thing, I, I remember getting into a big argument with a bunch of people over Elf Dance, the art in Elf Dance, some obscure Kickstarter game right here. But, like, you know, if it's a representation of you and your thing, like, who cares? But if you want it to be good, if you want it to be fun, if you want to other people to enjoy what you're making, you need to be willing to, like, show it to them and get their feedback and then take it and use it and not just, just you know, put it on a piece of paper and never look at it. All right. Well, I'm going to bounce this now back to Jim because I think Jim probably has a slightly different opinion when it comes to feedback. <laughs> uh, I know I know we've chatted about it a bit, but maybe talk to our viewers uh, a little bit about how you view feedback and wh- how, how do you interpret or glean from what people are trying to say. Um, well, first, the first thing that I usually do is I also have to qualify, am I making a game or am I making a product? And I know that sounds really weird for somebody to parse. Oh, no. That's a good but, question. Uh, I, I look at game as art and I look at a, pr- a product as craft. I think that's that, that's how I would divide those two. A game you're making for fun, you're making for you. And like we said before, it doesn't have to be fun. I think the process of making it better be fun. Um, but the product has to, I think... Ticket to Ride's a product. I don't think it's a game, right? I think it, 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 it has sold so many copies, and it has, um, it has passed so many litmus tests to make it um, agreeable to so many people that it's effectively a product and not a game. And so, um, uh, when you're looking for feedback, you need to know what you're looking for feedback for. Are you looking for feedback on your game, or are you looking for feedback on your product? Sure. And oftentimes, playtesters don't give me anything that that is useful. Um, and that's not because I'm an arrogant jerk and I don't want to hear what they have to say, but I get a lot better notes from people when I send them a copy of the rule book than I ever get from a playtest session. I observe more at a playtest session than they will ever give me in feedback because they are just giving me notes on the game that they want, not the game that needs to be made. And there's so many pieces to see. You've played 100 AD, Daryl. You yep. know how many moving pieces are in that game. Yep. And if you told me, well, this one faction needs to just have better cards, then you, <laughs> you that, that doesn't make any sense because there's 330 cards in that game, right? And yep. you've only seen 10 of them. So to give me feedback on those 10 is useless. Yep. But isn't um, part of that your interpretation of it, right? Like you recognizing the lack of information or recognizing their, yeah, their yeah, position? yeah. Sure, no, absolutely, absolutely. But unless somebody has played the... I've played 100 AD 200 times now. And so unless somebody's going to play it as much as I have and gone through the growing pains with it I have, I don't know that they're going to be able to give me the kind of meaty feedback that I, I would need to make it a really... a much stronger game. All right, um, all right. Jim, I got, I got something for you I want to show you without even playing it. Can okay. you tell me if this is a product or a game? <laughs> That's a product. <laughs> that is absolutely a product. I don't know why you're putting me on the on the on the rack so there that with was, that one. That but was just too too perfect. Yeah. Yeah, right. that's but that's that's designed with a specific purpose, right? It's designed to make money. That is not designed to make sure that I have a good time. Okay. But is is the original game a game? No. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> yeah, it was. It was still a product. It was. It was joke intensive, and it was never fun. Oh and... no, no, no! I don't mean. I don't mean Munchkin. I mean Love Letter. Oh, Love Letter! I didn't even see that part of the thing. I don't know. Um. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. There's really not a lot of choices in there uh, for my litmus test. So, I don't know. I, you really shouldn't be asking me about that particular product because of the history there with yeah, with the sure. Tempest line. Yeah, what are you doing there, Daryl? You're stirring the pot. Stop stirring the yeah, pot. Yeah, it's exactly what he's doing. He is totally stirring Sorry, the pot. Sorry, it's too tempting. It, it was funny, though. I mean, he got me good, but... Yeah. Um, so... Randy's agreeing with you now that he says he gets so much better feedback just watching people play my games. I often don't even need to ask them any questions after a play test. And it's true. Daryl and I believe the same thing. What kind of things are you looking for specifically, Jim? Um, I'm, I'm looking to make sure that people understand what they're doing. I want to see that they're engaged. Um, 100 AD, there's a, there can be downtime, but you really need to be paying attention to what everybody's doing, even if you're playing a six-player game of it. Mm -hmm. um, it goes a little long, but you need to watch what people are doing because everything changes the game state all the time. Um, I think I'm looking for feedback at the end about whether or not people enjoyed the process because that's something you... I put the word value in brackets sometimes because value is something that we can't really analyze for people. What you get out of something is very different from what I get out of something. So I need to ask that question when it's all over. Did you have fun? Especially from uh, playtesting a role-playing game, but um, I guess I'm just looking for you know things that aren't working, things that are slowing down play, things that are confusing people. Is the iconography right? How many questions am I getting? Am I getting the same question over and over again? Mm -hmm. um, and so you know the the demos I did of 100 AD at at Gen Con were fantastic for that because I got to play it hundred times with people throughout the weekend and I saw the same question come up about maybe 25-30% of the time. Right. right. Yeah, Suzanne is saying that she loves or, or loves, sorry, 100 AD because it's so take that. Um, I like what you're saying, Jim, about, uh, about sensing the trends in the feedback. Uh, that's what Jesse and I do a lot of is we kind of do um, almost a qualitative analysis of feedback and take a look at, okay, what is that person really saying? If they said and Jim, you're right. When when people look at the card set and they've only seen 10 out of 100 cards and they're saying, well, there's not enough, this card should have that and this card should have be plus three and this card should take only cost two mana or whatever, you know that the specifics of their suggestions are not particularly correct necessarily, but that what are they trying to really say? You know, is this this card is too powerful or this card should be cheaper? The absolute value of that may be different, but maybe what they're saying, and if you hear that in a trend over time, over 100 people playing, you hear that 25 times. You're right, that's a quarter of the people that said <laughs> roughly the same thing. So we do a lot more trend analysis in our feedback than taking specific verbatim word-for-word -word feedback right. as, as the gospel law. Um, Eduardo, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, this one comes from Sir Bob again. Sir Bob asks, have you ever quit a design that was good but not great? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, both both professionally, I mean, I guess professionally working for other people and for myself, I think. Um, but, you know, and one of the interesting things is that, we, we, you know, this, it's semantics, but we're talking about games and we're talking about products and we're talking about design, right? And, and maybe there's a lexicon we want to use. But, right, when you're, when you're taking a game and then you're thinking about a product, you have to evaluate your ability to, to sell that product or launch that product or, or um, you know, 
get it to do well on Kickstarter, right? So you have right. this other evaluation that's put against the game, and, and the game might be, be, the design might be strong, but the theme might not be, or the theme might be fantastic, and the design might not be. And so I think um, once you get into product land, you really start, you know, and, and if, if you don't want to just, you know, you want to continue to do better at it, and I'm not, you know, people on this thread asking questions have had more success in products than I have, but, um, <laughs> the, you know, I think you have, to, you have to think about that and say, you know, is this worth my time? Or sometimes you just have, like, seven different things going on, and you just, which one are you enjoying more is sometimes the criteria where that, that's super cool, but you just, you're having more fun over here. And, and for me, with Pencil First Games, um, it's really, I wanted to start a company where I could do what I wanted to do, sort of on my own or with other people, but not, not buy some, you know, money-driven a number or some other thing, so it really... Not by the man. Not by the man or the woman or whatever, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, I had just come out of Disney, and it was like, I'd gotten to the point where I just really wanted to not have those time limits if I didn't want to have them, but sometimes you do. Right. And nice. so I, th I think uh, one of the important things to distinguish is that when we talk about a game and we talk about a product, sometimes it can be exactly the same thing. Right, a game can be a product once we start monetizing it and look for a return on investment, etc. Uh, but at the design phase, are we thinking about that? I want to know. Are, are I hope I hope we're not. Well, see, yeah, here's I, an interesting, and I think this is the difference between the two of us. I I consider myself a game maker more than a game designer. Okay. And for me, when I think about a product and a product experience, it's actually the whole thing, right? It's the theme, it's the design. It's the production value. It's it's the components. So I actually, when I approach things like that, I, I end up sort of doing it that way. And, and that's why I find myself in situations where if I don't feel like I'm good at that type of design I want the product to have or the game to have, I'll work with another designer who is much better at that than I am because I, I, that's more important than me being the designer, whereas it might be something I feel like I can really do the design, the design I, I want to do. So... I mean, I, I, I think I have a different, I'm not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm flat out a game designer. I sort of think of myself as a game maker, and I, I think there's a little bit of a different yeah. blend to it. You also have a, yeah, quite a different skill set than a lot of us as well with yeah. graphics and things like that, right? So it's well, a little different. Well, I, I kind of want, I want to chase that a bit because, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. like uh, Sen is saying, uh, Ed, you have a variety of skill sets that kind of let you do maybe a few more things or a few different things than some designers do. Um, so as a game maker, I'm curious. I was curious about this before, but I didn't know you. And so here's a chance for me to get to sure. you know, ask my own questions, too. Is uh, I noticed uh, for Gen Con, you had gem-packed cards, and you had developed so much for it, including not only the game, but an app. You had developed uh, promotional material, you even had kind of a, it sounded like, I'm not 100% sure, but you had some of the Kickstarter, maybe even structured or built. Oh, sure. But it wasn't, but it wasn't out yet. But then I noticed you did the, the uh, speed, speed dating. dating. Right. So I'm curious, with things like that, is, this, is, is things like speed dating and networking in that environment, are those more for you as a game maker a tool of promotion or a tool of networking and trying to find partners, or is no, that, so, or are you shopping for a publisher in that scenario? Like I, I was curious because I don't know you, so I couldn't oh, ask sure. you that. But I think, and, and actually, a few people ask me that question. I mean, so uh, I'll try to tease it out for a second. Yeah, please. Going to, to, to speed dating with um, 
Gem Pact, and for that matter, the siblings' trouble as well, though I didn't show it at, at, at Speed Dating, was a reflection of having gone through the Kickstarter process with Liftoff, mm-hmm. um, having launched it, brought it to retail, and felt and saw the limitations. I, I mean, you can say I, I, I was all over the place, but frankly, like as far as Liftoff is concerned, you know, it didn't get the. You know, I, I ran my Kickstarter right at the same time as Randy ran, ran Lanterns, right, and I got to watch the Renegade version of Lanterns versus the the Pencil First Games version of so Liftoff. And at this year's Gen Con in particular, I was having a lot. I was thinking a lot about really how much of this is, is me wanting to design stuff versus being, you know, do I want to be promoting these at every convention? And so, right. um, yeah, and, and so what was my approach? And so I was at Speed Dating with the idea that maybe there would be a conversation and I wouldn't run the Kickstarter and I would work with them or somebody would be signed on and we'd do the Kickstarter, but they would publish it. I, I didn't actually um, right. have an agenda other than... You are just more open-minded to it could go yeah. different ways. And, and, and I think, you know, you know, some people felt, you know, maybe... It was weird. I, I thought it was interesting. Some designers felt sort of off, off put by that in the sense of, you know, I'm just coming with a design and I'm looking for this and you're able to get an artist and doing these things and you could publish it or you could try to and, and so are you supposed to be here? I also had this interesting reaction where like some of the people who were the representing publishers were like people who had had one game on Kickstarter, right? Like, right. Who, who like, I, if, if you were a designer and you signed up with that, with that publisher, you'd actually like you wouldn't be getting the value I would hope or expect to get when you signed up and engaged with a with a with a publisher. Sure. Now, the speed dating event has tons of amazing publishers. I mean, I don't want yeah. to even say that because I'm not qualifying them, but big publishers who really have footprint and and, yep. and and are at all these conventions and are internationals. And then and then there were these small ones, who, some of which will become big players in the yep. world, right? But it was just an, it was interesting to me looking at that side. And I was like. I know you from you ran a Kickstarter. Well, I ran a Kickstarter. Like, what's going on? Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, I got that feedback. I mean, I think, and you know, and, and certainly, I didn't mean to take anyone's spot or, or offend anyone. But I was genuinely looking for a publisher at that time. And well, I don't think I don't think like you just explained. You're not taking anyone's spot if you were shopping it. I mean, that that was the idea of the speed dating was exploring relationships and finding a potential publisher. So, I mean, you went into it maybe with more experience than some people or maybe with a product at a different stage. But it sounds like um, your intent was actually very much similar as many others there. I, I was just more curious because I, I saw you had such a, a nice broad product with, with uh, advertising and all these other things that a lot of designers... Um, can't even do. But so I had the Kickstarter. Yeah. I that one was a slog. That one was really tough. Yeah. I uh, got it over the finish line, so to speak, and it's it, it's going to be it's going out the backers and going into market. But I'm going to have a really small set of, of games. I'm going to push through right. distribution and see how it goes. And you know, it's it it's certainly the trajectory. Talking about the product side, and I and I think we want to focus more on design. But talking about yeah. that trajectory is is limited to the sort of breadth of Pencil first games, with which ultimately is is just me and the people I make games with. But when it comes to promotion and materials yep. and going to conventions, I, I don't have a bunch of other people doing that, right? Sure, sure. So th- then, bouncing the question over to to Jim, I know with Post World Games, you've had some successes, some projects that you've decided to cancel. Um, you know, you're still figuring out because again, you're not one of these well known instant, you know. Everyone funds uh, first day kind of uh, known entities. So right. tell us a little bit what you've learned along the way and why you're still deciding to use Kickstarter as a tool 
and not necessarily um, pitching your things to publishers. Uh, oh, well, that... Or are you doing both? You look, no, that was a twist there at the end. Um, uh, first, I... I um, I can I love using Kickstarter for the simple reason that it puts me in control of my product, right? I get to pitch whatever I want. If I just want to do a thousand dollar project just to get some money to pay for the art yep. and put it out there, then I can do that. I can make something small. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned, and this always sounds like sour grapes, so please take this in the in the way it's intended, is that the gaming industry has very much become a popularity contest and so if you don't have the network, if you don't get your voice out there, if you don't build the community, if you don't have a fan base that knows you, nothing you do is going to succeed. And it's going to be the slog that Ed was just talking about to get to the finish line if you haven't gotten your ducks in a row. And, and board game kickstarting is very much become a process that you must do it the right way, this way, every time. And if you deviate from this program, people aren't going to back you. Um, uh, Scythe is a perfect example of somebody doing it well, even though the the game itself may not be any good. It doesn't matter because they did everything right. And I'm not saying it's not going to be good. No, no. But you're just what I'm that it's done so well as a campaign. Yeah, it's done so well as a campaign because they did everything right and they followed all the rules on how you do a Kickstarter. And I think wrote the rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think that if you if you want to go into a product just or a game just to make a game for the love of making that game, you need to set your expectations a lot lower than Scythe did. Scythe went in with the plans of making a product, an IP, and they were going to big this build this big brand, and they went in with this big marketing push. Now, to answer the second part of what you said, why I don't work with other publishers, um, I think a lot of it has to do with um, I have a bad reputation in the industry, and people don't like working with me. Um, because I don't really can't really speak to all of it, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that I've told a lot of people that working with them in the past was difficult. Uh, working on Thunderstone, for instance, was probably the worst experience of my game career, right. and so saying that kind of thing publicly hurts me as a person. But I'm sure, going to sure. be honest about that sort of thing. And right. the other is most publishers don't know what they want, and I don't want to spend any time working with somebody that is going to waste my time because right. when you're when you're working for a percentage then the amount of hours that I have to lose working on the project the publisher doesn't care about that yeah. so I want to be able in a situation where I finish something like 180 I hand it off to somebody else they do the marketing they do the sales yep. they do that kind of push so I can go back to making the next thing yeah well I think I think even the part part of answering the first part is true in the second part also you I mean the creative control and being able to do projects that you, you care about the way you want to do them. I think right. that's also true there. I mean, doing something small, for instance, is not necessarily a publisher. I mean, you sign a game with a publisher, that's not really their MO, is to do something small. But sometimes you want to do something that's creative and might only be something small. Or, right. So, yeah. I did a role-playing game about playing illegal immigrants hiding from the police in, in the new country you're living in. And so if I tried to do that for say, White Wolf or Onyx or Savage Worlds or whatever, nobody would have picked it up. Yeah. But well, right, there's the, there's the smallness, but also the content, what you, wanna, mm -hmm. what you actually want to produce. If, you're, if you want to make something that isn't sort of fit the shape, whether it's for Kickstarter or just the, the general shape of these products, um, you know, 
you, that that can be a big challenge if you're mm -hmm. a publisher. So Suzanne asks a question: uh, What are the easiest things as a designer to compromise, and then on, and and what are the easiest things when you're self-publishing to compromise on? Does it change? Is it the same? Jim, what do you think? Um, component quality is probably the easiest thing to compromise on. Um, uh, and that's the same across the board. I think if you wanted to see nice wooden cubes and they just want to go with paper tokens or they don't want to actually do a board, they just want to do some cards, making those kind of changes to save money, that's almost always the easiest thing, in my opinion, to compromise. Um, but I would never compromise choices just to save a few bucks. Right, and what do you mean by that? Choices. I think. Well, I, we talked. You were talking about earlier. Lagraha. Is that how you yeah. pronounce it? Lagraho. I don't. Yeah, know. that sounds good. Lagraha. Lagraha. Um, there, each card has four elements to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Those are four choices every time you draw a card, which is the genius of its design. I think if somebody came along and said, "No, nah, we we really don't want to do that much text on a card. We're just going to do two choices." Then the game doesn't. It's not the same game anymore if there's right. like prices on each card. So, so I, I think that yeah, okay. And, so when you're changing the game, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Amaro. Well, I was just going to add. I, I think one an area a similar sort of comment. I think as a designer, when you're thinking about a product or a game, um, oftentimes um, the best games strain the player in one way or another, or create tension, or drama, or conflict, or surprise, and um, you know, in some ways, you make them uncomfortable, whether they're feeling like they're going to lose or they're behind or they need that role. And um, oftentimes, it's easy. It's easy. People get un if you can do that wrong, you can people are unhappy or don't like your game, or you split your audience. And then you can. It's easy as a designer to dilute that to minimize those choices. Sort of like the cars example here, but to to just take away to 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 be, take less risks with the design in, in terms of creating drama and and and, and pressure in order to just make it more comfortable for everyone and then just make a game that maybe people sort of had fun with but didn't don't remember or don't want to play again you know that that stuff that makes you come back oftentimes also creates um, puts people off and I think in design it's easy to sort of say oh well you know not every a quarter of the people really complained about that thing so I'm I want every I want a hundred percent of the people to be happy as opposed to actually the 25% that this was made for, or whatever, and um, and I'm going to change the design. So I think that's a, a I see a lot of designers fall, fail and fall against that kind of uh, situation. Because they're trying to make everybody happy all the time? Yeah, and, and some I guess sometimes there are a lot of simple things you can do that make more people happy, but um, dilute the real core value or nugget of fun of your experience, especially right. if it's a game that puts a little strain on the player. Right, so watering down the experience for the sake of making some people ha a little bit happier by and making it less more mass market. Yeah, yeah, a little yeah, more mass market. So I wanted to ask you, Eduardo, because following up with that, uh, Sophie Gravel, who is the uh, CEO of F to Z, Philosophia, Z-Man, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, has said that in today's market, it can't just be a good game; it has to be a great game. Um, and how does how does that kind of statement affect you as not only a game maker designer but also as a self-publisher? Do you think that is true? Are your games great? And you know, is that you know standing the test of the market? That's a really um, I'm trying. How do I how do I phrase this? Um, 
Sophie doesn't I, want I, I just show. like statements like that. I mean, I, I think, um, like, ultimately there's truth to it, right? Like, right now, if you want to, if, if, if you're making an iOS title or you're making a Kickstarter game or you're trying to break into the market and your objective is to have something that fits a criteria of success that has to do with penetration or sales or adoption or playing or market size, that's true. It's absolutely true by virtue of the, the, the huge amount, the flood of product, the flood of talent, the flood of um, quality because you can just work directly with you know shipping and everything that's happening into sort of distributed product development is just taking all these smart people and letting them mix up in different configurations. So I completely agree with that statement in the sense of if that's your objective, yes. I, 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 I question whether that needs to be the objective for everybody mm-hmm. and if it's yeah. true for everyone. So, I, I, you know, I, I think the statement, I, I don't think a game needs to be great in the category uh, that's, that's this, you know, like, I love, I'm, I, I like Family Night games. I mean, I'm not, you guys are, ha- about half the games you guys rattle off, I know, and then the rest of my like, uh, who knows. But, um, uh, like, you take a game like, Takenoko or Five Tribes or Small Worlds or Ticket to Ride or all these games that represent a certain type of, of broad perfection, if you will, or greatness, but, you know, ultimately I, I don't think there are any... I mean, the, you, you could argue they're better than others. But, I mean, I just think there's all these types of fun and different things you could do, and it really comes down to what the individual is trying to accomplish with their work and their passion, right? And I'm getting a little preachy, but I just don't think... I, I just don't buy it. Um, I, I wouldn't say... Um, from my perspective, and you know, for better or for worse, I don't consider my stuff. And this is sort of an art artist sort of comment, but my stuff isn't great. Like in the category of great, like no, no, I'm like, I don't. I haven't made a AAA product in that sense. Um, but I, I'm really happy and pleased, and I think I've made quality, fun, engaging products. But I'm, I'm not the best designer in the world, and I, I don't sort of espouse myself to be. Hmm. I would argue that AAA games aren't the best either. So there you right. go. Yeah, uh, Jim, you had a comment. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think that that's loaded, right? Asking if a game needs to be great versus good because it's sure. just a magnitude, um, and then you get into the discuss. You get into the wrong kind of debate. I think if you looked at a Venn diagram of games and you said these are good games and they meet the criteria, and if good is meeting the criteria of a game, and then satisfying is another diagram of did I have a great time or a fun time or. Yep, I'm making circles because the yep. Venn diagram is going to overlap in a second. I thought you were making a heart. <laughs> oh, I'm making a heart. Um, I think if is a game satisfying? You know, there's a ton of games that really, really suck, but they're satisfying. You know, Candy Crush is satisfying to so many people, and that must be the stupidest game that anybody's ever made. Angry Birds, really stupid, but so satisfying. I play a ton of Star Realms. Not a great game, but satisfying. And... I think that when we, if we really want to worry about making money or being successful, and I'm putting up quote marks now, um, then we need to worry about being satisfying more than we need to worry about being great. Um, and that is probably the route the games have been going for the last five to ten years. They've been going down the satisfying route and not the good or great route. Well, There's people, exceptions. Yeah. And people That's struggle an when they're talking about games but not food, right? Like, you can have a conversation about something you want at 2 o'clock in the morning or something you want, you know, you're going to a fancy restaurant or, you know, fast. And and people sort of understand that they're different things and you can have different appetites and you sort of want a different thing at a different time. And But, you know, I, I think that that applies just as much to a party game or a casual game or a weekend, you know, 
slog fest, right? So I think I think I, I agree with with what you were saying. Well, I want to kind of follow this up then, because I mean, I love this conversation of good versus versus satisfying. I'm curious. I'll point this to Ed first. Uh, where where do uh, things like awards or recognition come into play when it comes to validating design or um, you know helping games be uh, successful? Where 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 do you see those play into this discussion of great versus satisfying? I I was recently working with somebody who would go get on a, a he would say. Creative people are seeking one of two things. They're seeking accolades or they're seeking, you know, like essentially revenue or results, right? And and, and I disagreed with the statement, but I, I, I think in some ways, um, you know, I, I think awards are, are – I'm not against awards. I think awards are, are a good way for communities of people to show their appreciation, recognition of hard work or quality or these different subjective terms. Um, but to me, I don't I – don't, I, I think of them – Mostly as um, mo- most of them turn into just stickers and, and status symbols and things that are used in sort of a product marketing sense. But I, I think there's a place for awards and awards programs. And I, and I think people who I was part of the Dice Tower review. You know, I I, I was in the whatever the I don't know what you call it, but the, the people who voted, right? And so, you know, that was a very rigorous process with lots of conversations back and forth and debating and arguing. It was, it was every the people who participated really were focused on this category. What should the game be? They didn't care what that that stamp might mean to the publisher who then is looking for the stamp. You know what I mean? But um, but I think they're more often used the other way, even if it's not the way they're sort of intended. For sure, I'm gonna bounce this and maybe direct it a little bit differently for Jim. I'm curious, which awards do you think matter? And uh, which which awards on the flip side do you think are are actually just getting in the way? Um, I'm not a really big fan of awards. Um, I I think most of them uh, origins. I'll use origins as a perfect example. They change the criterion every year, so it's meaningless. It, having one doesn't matter because you have to qualify what year you got it. Um, <laughs> you know, I I have two origins awards, and I don't even mention them ever on my resume because they don't mean anything to me. I have any's. I have a Player's Choice Award from InQuest Magazine. Um, The only award that I have is one I got from from screenwriting. And I'll actually mention that one because that one was made, it was peer-reviewed and I won money. So (laughs) that, you know, that, that's, that, somebody had to think that my script was good in order to give me money. Um, That doesn't, that isn't the only criterion for an award. I think Spiel de Jar is probably important to publishers, I don't know that it's all that important to authors because, again, every year they change who they're going to give it to. Last year we did a really complicated game, so this year we're going to do a casual game. They ha- they actually go into it thinking that. So your chances of winning it are 50-50. I mean, even being considered is 50-50 because you don't know what year your game is going to fall on, um, if it's going to be a complicated year or an easy year. And I, I just think that, I think that a peer-reviewed or a fan-reviewed award is much more important than just people that I I don't think the Academy Awards are worth anything for instance because you know too many of the categories anybody can vote on and those people know nothing about that thing Um, if you guys picked a favorite game sitting down on this show and you said we want to give an award for this thing that would matter 
to people who respect your opinion and watch your show and know that you know what you're talking about. But will it matter to a guy at a game store in Staten Island that you guys picked, you know, 180 to be fair, your favorite game? And I know it's your favorite game, so you guys don't <laughs> don't embarrass me by bringing it up. I just I just don't want to make Ed feel bad. <laughs> you should pick one any game because I don't, like I said I don't I don't care. Um, but the the interesting thing is the the reality is to some degree in some of those awards that person seeing that game in the store to then buy it whether or not they care about the award is a reflection of distributors and stores picking up games with those awards right like it's this yeah. weird yeah and I mean, I've talked to distributors about what awards matter to them and they say almost none of them <laughs> make a difference in sales except for Spiel Jahr. Yeah. and I think Parents' Choice for kids' games. And I just want to note, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I live uh, in, in the Bay Area right now, and I'm, I'm friends with Susan McKinley-Ross, who uh, won for Quirkle. Yeah, and, absolutely. you know, Great example. it meant a lot to her, right? Like, absolutely. There was nothing about that that wasn't just this recognition and joy of having this sort of taking her out of really family passion, you know, kids' products and, and just, you know, launching her into this other side. So, I mean, Absolutely. I, think, I think it meant a lot to her. Just Yeah, well, I mean, even the Spiel de Jarre nomination for Quirkle was a, was a big deal, too. So. Mm -hmm. I, I would like to add, the very first thing I ever wrote in the gaming industry was nominated for an award. And before I knew any better, I was really excited about that at the time. And then I found out the process by which they chose the nomination, and I was like, oh, great, okay. They had so, picked somebody from our company, so it was just me <laughs> by random lottery. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, it's interesting. I, I think a lot of people are, are saying that, um, you know, this is making them think about what they do. Do you, like, when you think about your game designs, are you creating, uh, like, as Jim would say, a product? Are you considering a game? Or are you creating an overall experience, especially as a self-publisher? Are you wrapping everything together, making one thing that's a great game, a great product, has all the graphics, all you know, hitting all the high notes? Is that really what you're doing? And then for Daryl and myself, who go the traditional publishing route, where does where does it start and stop for us? What do you think? I'm gonna ask this to Daryl because no, don't ask me. Don't ask you. No, same, same <laughs> question for me for the after show. All right, let's say the question for the after show. Okay, so Jim. Are, I know you, you would consider yourself, or from what you said today, more of a designer, but are you creating a product when you're bringing it to Kickstarter? Um, that's a really good question. And I have developed before, right? I've yeah. worked on big mm -hmm. games before. Um, but it's really hard touching other people's ideas and then not offending them by the changes you have to make. Uh, so that's not really something that I would want to be doing every day. That said, if I if I were starting something today, it just depends on where the inspiration comes from, right? A lot of times, just a two-word phrase pops in my head, and I said, "What would that game be about?" And I start making it. Um, mm -hmm. It I won't worry about it being pol polished until much later. Right now, I just want to get all my ideas on paper and start making it. Mm -hmm. I think when I get to the Kickstarter phase, I'm going to design the page based on who I'm presenting to. Um, I'm I've got a funny $1 Kickstarter thing that I'm going to do. It's only $1 to back it. Um, and so I didn't put a lot of effort into the page because it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be silly. Um, and I think when we overly polish everything and everything starts looking the same, then 
I think I'm off your question now. I'm off the track, but I think oh, when right, everything right. starts to look the same, I. Oh, oh. Uh, we lost him. Oh, did you, did well, you us? on that note, then we. Ben's hilarious. Uh, Everything looks the same. Jim looks gonna, the same. Oh, we're, we're, still still on, we're still on, right? We're yeah, still yeah. on. So we're gonna <laughs> go last. Last question, and whatever passionate rant Jim had, we're gonna hopefully wrangle him back in for for the after show. Uh, but I, we always ask each of our guests kind of some form of this last question. So I'm gonna go to you, Ed, with this, and I, I'm curious, uh, especially with your background. Uh, in mind, how would you uh, recommend or what tips would you give for someone that's making the same transition that you made? You know, what what would you say to that, you know, little Ed a few years ago, um, now, you know, a, a, a few a few years wiser? Um, that's a great question, and, and, and it's to partly respond to the previous question. Um, in, in games and, and, and game development, when I did it indie, when I did it as a job, you always had to do it all. This version in the game industry of just being a designer that creates a design on paper and like submits it off for a royalty, that, that, that doesn't exist so much in the video game space. And so it was totally foreign to me to sort of see this, this huge split between people who did everything and people who only designed. Um, I'm, I, you, know, you were just on a team together and working together. But to answer your question, it's, it, it's do. It's make. It's, it's like... Um, there's this great speech by Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever, but about only sleeping six hours a night and all this other stuff. But it, it's about getting out there and designing and making and designing and making and failing fast and just that that thing where you know I was working hundreds of hours, uh, you know, like like hundred hour weeks all the time, game after game after game in the game space on my own, and just you just got to keep. Keep doing, and you're gonna. Sometimes it'll work. Sometimes it'll fail, and 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 learn, and and pay attention, and be humble, and be willing to admit mistakes, and, and just go and keep going. That's that's about the the best recommendation I can give. Love it, love it. Great advice, uh, Sen. Yeah, Jim, have you uh, you've done this before? So you've given some last bits of advice for people. But let's let's focus on the topic of the day. So when is good good enough? Can you give new designers one little piece of your your brain sauce that would tell them how to know when a game is good enough? Either self-publish or take to a publisher. Yeah, um, that's a that's a actually a really great question because you can always analyze anything that you're doing to death. It nothing's ever finished, right? You can continue tweaking and making it better over and over again. I think when it satisfies you, when you're happy with it, when you've made the thing that you wanted to make, that's when you're ready to show somebody. Um, when you're done making compromises, that's when you're ready to show it to somebody. Because even once a developer gets it, they're still going to change it. They're still going to be making tweaks to it and and altering what you've made into what it is that they need. And so if it's your first game, you need to spend a lot of time with it. When you've been doing this as long as I have, you have a more intuitive sense of when that's the time. I can't give all the tools, but you just you need to step outside or let somebody else look at it and have them say, yeah, you're done, stop tinkering with this. I've seen guys tinker with games for 10 years before. So. Sure, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, Thank you, uh, gentlemen, uh, for a wonderful episode. We had uh, also a wonderful conversation going on uh, with our viewers, so I want to thank all of our viewers there uh, providing questions and chatting with each other. Uh, really, honestly, I say this, um, you're missing out uh, if you are awake 
um, during the live show, I really recommend you check out uh, the, the conversation going on in YouTube. Uh, it's really uh, full of just uh, great experts and, and well-meaning people sharing ideas and challenging each other. So uh, I really encourage you to check that out. But I, I want to say thanks to Ed and thanks to Jim for being on the show. Um, we're we're going to do the after show. I'm not sure if they'll stick around, but we'll find out um, for that. And anyone who knows, we usually uh, post our link for the after show. Um, uh, sometimes it leaks the same night. Sometimes we post it on Fridays. The idea is to spread out the content a little bit. Um, but, yeah, you know, we're just happy you're watching, and we appreciate your support. Um, also, I just want to give a highlight uh, shout-out for next week's episode, uh, I believe, and I could be wrong on this, but I believe we have Doug Morse. Um, and uh, Randy uh, from the documentary, oh, what is it, The Next Great American Board Game. We're going oh, to follow up with them and see um, how, how the documentary response has been, but also how's the game, you know, you know a few, a, like almost a year later. So uh, it'll be kind of, a, kind of the uh, extra features of the DVD going on in our next episode. So check that out. Uh, hopefully Jim won't die on us. Uh, at least uh, on air. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we have some great guests lined up for the next few weeks. So please uh, keep uh, tuning in, sharing your ideas. If you have ideas for guests, uh, you can reach out to us uh, through one of these means. Um, we really appreciate uh, your support, and uh, we really want to encourage. Keep making some great games. We are really looking forward to trying your game soon. <laughs> Bye.